So there's a, there's a great danger for many of us today um, as we kind of come to our text in John. We're going to be in chapter 11 if you haven't turned there. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, we are walking through the gospel of John, and I've got, I don't know if it's going to be good news or sad news, but we're at the halfway point through John right now. Uh, starting today, we'll break over into that second half of John. I don't know how long we've been at it. Been a while. Nine months we've been at, at the gospel of John. <clears throat> and we're at chapter 11, halfway there. So uh, the, the great danger for today, as you look at the text, a lot of you are going to come, come to that text and you're going to look at the subtitle and you're going to kind of look at some of the verses and the danger would be that you're going you're to be so familiar with this story. You're going to be so familiar with the narrative here that, that you might skip over some details. And so I'm really glad that we're going to take this verse by verse today. I'm going to, talk, I'm going to try to talk as fast as I can because I've got a lot here. And you know if I'm telling you I've got a lot here you should have packed a lunch. So I, I, my feelings won't be hurt if we're here at one o'clock and you guys are like, I got to go. Uh, you please get up and hopefully we'll be done by then. But I just have a lot of information to go through. Um, but I don't want this to be so familiar that we just kind of gloss over some of the details uh, in, this, in this account uh, as if like we already know what happens, right? Like a lot of us already know. Some of you might be encountering this this moment in Scripture for the first time, and if so, I'm really, really glad because we're, we're going to pull out some really cool details that's going on. Um, but here's the deal. It's, it's profound uh, details that we find in this story. It's an amazing story. And I was telling David uh, before our service this morning, I just said, if no one else gets their heart dug into today through this text, mine was, through just kind of studying and preparing. Uh, just it, I'm really excited for, for our, our time today. And my prayer would be, above anything, and it's already become that. I've already prayed that once, and I've just been praying this over you this week, as well as me, is that you and myself, that we would become more fascinated with Jesus when we leave here than when we showed up. Like when we see Jesus and we see these details and we know what's going on, that we would just fall more in love with Jesus when we, get, when we leave here than we were when we arrived. And so chapter 10, as it came to a close last week, I just want to kind of capture some verses that we didn't cover in detail, but we, want, we need to catch the story up. Um, the Jews were enraged. Jesus had made a, made a statement. He said, I and the Father, we're, we're one. He was talking about eternal life, and I give, I give them eternal life. And, and I, you know, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and destroy. And I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And, and when I give them eternal life, I hold them in the grips of my hands, and no one will take them from me, and they will never die. And he said, you know why? Because me and the Father, we're one. We're one person, and so they're in my grips, and then they're in the Father's grips. And no one's going to take you from me. No one. Whoever's in my hands will not be taken from me. I and the, and the Father are one. And at that point, the Jews were enraged. They, they, they screamed blasphemy. They picked up stones. They were ready to kill Jesus over this. And that's when this argument ensues. And Jesus, he basically uses concrete evidence, right? He's like pointing to things and he's saying, hey, look, uh, one thing is the scriptures that you believe, that you, that you pretend to, to believe in, like Psalm 82 talks about the sons of God and you want to stone me because I'm saying I'm the son of God? Scripture already calls people sons of God, right? We, so he points to scripture that they believe wholeheartedly on. And then he says, okay, you know what, guys? You're right. You shouldn't just take my word for it, right? You shouldn't just, just because I say I am the Messiah, you shouldn't just like run with that. Look at the miracles that I'm doing. Look at what's gone on so far. Look at the good works that I've done all in my Father's name. 
So if you don't believe my words, at least look at the works and believe on them, knowing that I am sent from God, that I am the Son of God. And so it came to a close, and that's where we're at today. We're coming right off the heels of that chapter that Jesus escaped from his execution that they were basically after him for because it's not his time, but it's now becoming his time. Um, And he goes away across the Jordan to where John was baptizing in in the beginning of this story where we saw. And and, and, and there's two profound things that we we basically learned in chapter 10 that, that stood out to me and I hope that stood out to you. One was found in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the bit, that was a paramount uh, verse of that section of John chapter 10, right? That, that, that I am the good shepherd and, and I'm not a hired servant. I am the good shepherd and, and my sheep know my voice. And when I call, they come to me. And those who don't know my voice, they're not going to come to me. I'm not their shepherd. And no one's going to take them from me is what he goes down in verse 28 to say. That was the second part that we learned. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so we spent last week just reminding ourselves of what eternal life is. Like we walk in this, we walk through this world um, with a with a fragile belief in eternal life. And why why I call it fragile is because many of us become afraid and fearful of so many things that go on in this world. And it just it's a it's a testimony to our disbelief. In eternal life. And so we don't have to be fearful anymore. And we're, we're free to take risk and we're free to obey Jesus in the hard things that he asks us to do because those of us who are in Christ, we're never going to die. Eternal life happened the minute Jesus gave me a new heart. And so that's, that's, my, that's my future now. And that's the, that's the future of those of you who are, who are in Christ. But given these glorious truths, right, we still have to trek through the everyday. We still have, to, okay, so there's, there's stuff on my mind today. There's stuff on my mind for this week that's coming up that, you know what, I would just rather not deal with or I'm just, I'm really going to ignore or there's a lot of problems that I'm faced with, things that I'm going to go through uh, this week and this month. And so they're real challenges, right? Everyday life kicks in, even though we know those two huge promises that were made in chapter 10. And so, so it is here with the opening of our, our text today in, in John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, now a certain man was ill. I want to stop right there. I know that's, I shouldn't stop right there. I'm going to stop right there for a minute because we need to see here that like we're going to kind of be going down the trail of suffering today for the believer, right? For those who believe in Jesus, we're, going, we're headed down that way. And I want you to know that suffering is a concrete reality, right? A certain man was ill. This is not some abstract or, or philosophical idea, this is, a, this is a real man. A certain man suffered. It's not a fairy tale about suffering. It's not an example of suffering. It's, it's a real moment that a specific person at a specific time who was really sick and who was really going to die. His suffering, your suffering, my suffering is not ignored by God. It is not. We go through this, and sometimes we wonder, God, do you even see what I'm going through? Do you even see what's happening? And I'm here to tell you that a certain man, one man out of all of creation, we're going to talk about a certain man was ill. So our suffering, it is certain to God. It is specific. It is seen. It is known 
by God. And, and I, just, I, I wanted to just kind of throw this reminder that Jesus uh, gave us, or promise he gave us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This isn't a rare bird, right? Jesus is not talking about some rare bird or an expensive bird. Like, they're everywhere, and they're literally worth pennies. And God knows each and every one of them. Very specific. He sees them, and he knows them. And God is in and over and sovereign over every little detail in our life, especially suffering. Like he's in all those details. He's sovereign over all of these details. He's in control of all of these details, especially our suffering. So it doesn't happen, right? Suffering is a concrete reality, and it doesn't happen inside of a vacuum, right? Suffering affects the community. It affects the people around me. It affects my friends and my family and my church and my, my neighborhood. For one person, when someone suffers, everyone around them are affected by this. And we see that going on in these verses. It says, Lazarus of Bethany, that was the certain man who was ill. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So you see how specific, how detailed we're being here? That this is a specific man. This is a certain man who lives in a certain community, who has certain family, who has a certain home, who's a real guy with a real job and a real family and a real life. And this is what's going on in this story. He lives in real community. He has real friends. He has real family. So one person's suffering and, and pain and hurt, it affects the entire community around them. And I believe that the reason God has given us this moment in Scripture, this moment that happened with Jesus, is to show us that though suffering, it does affect the whole community, God uses the gospel to bring hope to those who suffer as well as the community that they're a part of. And I just want you to kind of think about the community that you're in. And, and maybe one specific person in your community might be walking through suffering right now or who has walked through suffering and did it not affect the entire community. Right? I think just, just this weekend there was a tragic accident right here in town that a whole community is weeping over today. Right, one specific moment in time that affects an entire community. And I think God gives us this story to remind us that the gospel is used in a specific certain situation, but it's also enough for the community. It affects, the, the suffering affects the community, but the gospel will also engage and cover that community. And so this community, is, it's Bethany, right? And, and, and Bethany, this, this neighborhood, this, this village is on their way to getting a glimpse of the glory of God. Like it, they're, on, they're on their way. And, and, and Jesus really loves Lazarus. Again, this is not an abstract idea. This is not something that just, it's a, it's a fairy tale. This is a real thing that happened. He really loves him. And so verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The guy you love is ill. Now this is the right response to the situation. This is the real, this is the real deal. Like Jesus really loves Lazarus. He really loves Martha. He really loves Mary. He really loves you. He really loves me. And it's him who we run to when we're in need. It's him who we send for when we're in need. And, and this is, here's the deal. There's an authentic 
and beautiful example that was set here for us. And I want to spend just a little bit of time authentic because Mary and Martha respond in much the same way you and I respond when we're, when we're under pressure, right? When things are happening to us, they respond the way we do, right? They try to systematize things, right? Systematize the situation. Let's use whatever leverage we have, whatever, whatever handles that we have to influence the outcome, right? Um, Jesus, the one you love, not just any God, but the one you love, that's the one who's ill, right? I'm Mary. I'm, I'm Mary. I'm the one who, who pushed through the crowd, pushed through the house, broke all of the cultural rules to adore you, to, to break a, a, an expensive ointment and, and pour it out on your feet and, and wipe your feet with my hair. Like, I'm that Mary. I'm the one who adores you. My brother, the one you love, he's sick, right? So it's obvious. All these things are being put in place. The, the outcome is obvious, right? We've done all this good stuff for Jesus. So the outcome is obvious. I can manipulate Jesus to do what I want him to do. Lord, you remember all the money we gave, right? You remember all the money we put in the offering. You remember, you remember my family built the orphanage, right? God, you remember those things that we did, right? We, oft, we often respond the same way they did. So I, I don't want us to hate on them. I, what I want them to do is just see the raw authenticity. Like they're under pressure. They're in a lot of pain right now. They're in a lot of worry and anxiety right now over their brother being sick. And so they're trying to do whatever they can do to alleviate the situation. And so they're, they're just a, a group of, a couple of real women who are really desperate and have a real need. And so it's authentic that way, but it's also very, very beautiful. And that's the two parts I want us to see to this. Like, they didn't ask him to come to Bethany at once. They didn't say, hey, you need to get over here. They just said, go tell Jesus that the one he loves is sick. We're not asking him to come put down what he's doing, to rush over here. Just go tell him that the guy's sick. The one that he cares for, the one that he loves is sick. We're not asking for him to perform a miracle. We're not asking for him to drop what he's doing. Lord, the one who you love is ill. Jesus, here's my situation. Do whatever seems good to you. Can we get to that point? Jesus, here's my situation. I'm not asking you to do anything except what you believe is good in this situation. So they didn't ask him for all that. And this is true faith, true humility. We see this playing out here. But Jesus is more committed to the glory of God than he is to his comfort or to our comfort. He's committed more to the glory of God. It says verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, many of us know the end of this story. Many of us have read this. We know it's fixing to, fixing to go down, that Lazarus would, in fact, die. And here Jesus is saying that it's not going to lead to death. This illness does not lead to death. But we read the story. And so what Jesus is, he's not saying that, Jesus, that Lazarus isn't going to die. What he's saying is death will not have the final say in Lazarus' life today. It's not going to happen. That he's going to allow Lazarus to die. 
and he will allow Mary and Martha to grieve and to hurt and to sit in a state of confusion. He's going to allow all of those things. But what he's trying to say here is none of it will be wasted. None of this will be wasted. All of the pain, all of the grief, all of the confusion and hurt and heartache that you're going through right now and all the pressure you feel, none of it will be wasted. It will all result in this community and this family seeing the beauty and the power and the majesty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to result in. And so the message of the Bible as a whole, let me just say this as a some reinforcement for some, but maybe news to others. It's not primarily about us. Like we're not picking stuff out of the Bible to talk about, to talk about ourselves. It's primarily a story about God, right? And so, so we don't try to take the, the Bible and say, here's a comfortable, pain-free way to live your life. Or here's a way to maximize your potential. Or here's a way to live your best life now. The message of the Bible is first and always God's story. It's about him. And we're just, we're just kind of in the story, right? We're kind of there, but it doesn't land on us. It's God's story. And he wouldn't be God if he cared more about your temporal comforts and Lazarus' temporal comforts and Mary and Martha's comforts than he does about demonstrating his power and his compassion. Like he, he wouldn't be God if he reacted to all of our little issues, right? Without first landing at his power and his compassion and his glory. And so we see this in the life of Jesus, right? His life wasn't comfortable and neither did he expect it to be. He didn't expect his life to be comfortable and it really wasn't comfortable. And in the midst of all of that, he glorified the father and his father brought much glory to him in the midst of all of that. Verse five says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So knowing how this thing goes down, knowing how it all unfolds, it seems that verse 5 is out of place maybe or a little wrong. I mean, it might be that way on the surface, but, but I really need you to get this um, today. That First of all, it's not out of place or it's not wrong because Jesus loved, right? It said that. It says Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So this is in the context of real relationships. This is happening in the context of real relationship. Jesus has put in time with his family. He spent time with them. They're, they're really cl- close friends of his. So Jesus, Jesus loved Lazarus. So he put down what he was doing, and he ran to be at their side. Or so he put down what he was doing and ran over there to, to heal Lazarus so, so that the family wouldn't have to go through pain and sickness and heartache. It's not how the story went at all. Verse 6 says, so he loved this family. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that's jacked up. That is jacked up. Okay, he loved them. That is the opposite response of what you do when you love someone, right? Like, no, we got to rush to him, put down what we're doing. That's, that now becomes priority. Let's go. And Jesus says, I love them, so I'm going to hang out here for a few more days. It is likely at this time Jesus already knows that Lazarus has died. The messenger on their way to tell Jesus, Lazarus has likely already died. And when, he, when they arrive with the news, Jesus already knows what's going on here. So this is the, this is the place where the story kind of goes off the tracks a little bit. Um, it's the place where you've been in your life. It's the place where I've 
been in my life, for sure. It's where God doesn't respond the way we want him to respond. God, I need you to come through in this area, in this situation. I need this to look this way. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't show up there. And so here's Jesus delaying the rescue that his friends so desperately need. And he's not, a, he, it's, he's not showing up just when they wanted him to, right? Jesus, we, here's, here's, your, here's your, your friend, the one you love, Lazarus. He's ill. Okay, that, we're hoping that sets some urgency on Jesus' priority, on his, on his itinerary. But he doesn't, he doesn't jump and go. And this, is real, this really hurts that Jesus, who has the power to speak a word, doesn't speak a word. Right? We've seen instances of this in Scripture where we don't have to go. We don't have to go. You just go home and, and, your, and your child is healed. Jesus has the power to do that, and he doesn't do it. He's not speaking the word. We need the word. We need some healing. We need you to show up, Jesus, and he's not. And Jesus, here he is, the one who, who healed and who can heal, who's not healing. I mean, this seems backwards, it seems harsh, it seems cruel. Right, Jesus, you have the capability to pull this thing off, and what are you doing? You're just hanging out with your buddies, and you're just going to kind of drag this thing out. And I think this is the place where a lot of people just probably bail on Jesus, right? If someone's gone through a tragedy, and they're trying to be faithful, and it doesn't work out the way they did, or Jesus didn't show up the way they needed him to show up, this is the part where they just cash it all in and say, you know what? If that's the kind of Jesus he is, then I don't want anything to do with him. I mean, this is a real thing. But he delays because he loves this family. He loves this family. And we're going to take a, a little bit closer look at this uh, next week. But I just want you to jump down to verse 20 for a second so we can get a glimpse of what the delay is going to bring. What's gonna, what is it going to bring about? Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. The same Mary who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. The, the same Mary that just displayed all-out adoration to Jesus. She won't even get up. Won't even get up out of her seat. Instead of rushing to meet Jesus, she just stays in her house. Now, I don't believe that Mary has lost her faith in Jesus. I don't believe she's even angry with Jesus. I believe she's just sitting in a state of confusion and hurt and pain, just trying to figure this out. What in the world just happened? When you know your friend Jesus can come through for you and he doesn't, this is what it looks like. I don't know if I can get out of my seat right now to go even see him, you know? I don't know what's going on. In verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd have just been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus, I know you. And I love you. And I needed you and you weren't here. Why didn't you show up when I needed you to show up? I want to be up front um, with all of you who, who don't follow Jesus. Now, I don't, again, I'm not going to assume anything in the room. Some of you may or may not 
follow Jesus. And so if you don't, I just want to, I just want to say this. Um, there's a real frustration and confusion that we Christians go through for this kind of stuff. This is a real thing. And this is not something that we, we don't have a whole lot of explanation, but we do have God's word about why Jesus does the things he does and why he wouldn't come through the way we would want him to come through. We go through these frustrations too. I was um, just thinking of a, a story as I was kind of thinking through this of just a moment where I have a friend who, who I work with um, and uh, he, he and his wife and his family, they, 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 you know, he's a, he's a believer and he's a growing disciple. Uh, man, he's just eating up everything that Jesus will, will, will show to him, you know. Um, and his, his wife is not there. Right, now just think about this. You know what? God had to do a miracle in our marriage. Like, I was, I was, a, I was a flat-out loser. Like, I wasn't, a li- like, even after Jesus rescued me and saved me, I was a poor leader in my home. And I didn't even, I didn't know how I was supposed to do that, right? But Ashley had a conviction then I, I do see what God's word says about the husband and the wife and how that order is supposed to line up. So regardless of whether he's an idiot or not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get in there, you know? And so she was taking a lot of great risk, you know? But, but in the end, um, well, it's not the end yet, but God's doing some things, right? Um, and things look, look okay. Like they, I understand my place now, but I didn't understand it until she inserted herself in that, in that place in our marriage. And so I sit there and think, like, God did that for our marriage. Why isn't he doing it for this guy's marriage? Why is this guy constantly struggling with this? And we're praying about it and, like, God, would you do something? Whatever you did in our, my marriage, would you do it in his marriage? And it doesn't always add up that way, all right? Or you see someone going through a sickness, right? And they're able to overcome and, and they're healed. And then on the other spectrum, you see someone go, walking through the same thing and they succumb to whatever sickness they have. God, what are you doing in that? Like, what's, what's going on in that? And you feel the tension in this story as it, as it turns yet another corner. And I want to remind you who's standing on the other side of the Jordan River from Lazarus at this point. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, standing a day's walk away from Lazarus now on the other side of the Jordan. And he's not just a teacher or a good man, right? He is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, one who ushers in redemption and hope and forgiveness. All of that. This is the one who stepped into humanity with one singular mission, and it wasn't to bring Lazarus back from the dead. One mission he had. His sights are locked on the cross. That's where he's headed. That's where he is going. And the Passover is only a few short weeks away. The Passover's coming. And this was his appointed hour. When he turns and faces towards Judea, he was walking to certain death. Even his disciples knew that in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. I don't know if you remember that. You started, I'm the son of God, and, and they wanted to pick up rocks and kill you with it. You sure you want to go back there? After two days, Jesus turns toward Bethany, but let's get real. His destination is Jerusalem. He's not turning back. When he turns his face to Bethany, he's headed toward Jerusalem. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles 
because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying, hey guys, there is nothing to fear. Of course I'm walking to my death. Don't you think I know this? That's what I've been telling you for the last few years. Yes, I'm walking to my death, but there is nothing to fear because I'm walking in the dead center of God's will. There's nothing to fear. Only the only assurance of safety. And here's the deal. I hate when we just use that word safety. Well, we got to do this to be safe. We got to make this to be safe. Safety is a figment of our imagination. I want us to all kind of get a hold of that right now. You can set up all kinds of parameters and and do all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, the young lady who lost her life in a wreck this weekend had her seatbelt on. The only assurance of safety that we have was given to us last week. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hands. That is our assurance for safety. That's where it lands. And so Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, and Bethany is but a pit stop. It's but a pit stop, and he knows that Lazarus is already dead. Before he ever takes a step, he knows Lazarus is dead. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He's going to get well. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought, that he meant taking rest in sleep. Can you imagine how frustrating Jesus is walking around these guys? Like, come on, guys. Can you imagine? Like, shouldn't, Jesus, shouldn't we let him rest? Right? That's what you do when you're sick. You, you sleep. You're going to wake him up? That's not going to help his situation. And so, verse 14, Jesus told him, Lazarus is dead. Okay? I'm sorry for using the... The terminology I use, Lazarus is dead. And so you can imagine this. Oh, oh well. Oh, okay. You don't wake dead people up. We're going to wake up a dead guy right now. Is that what you're saying? And he says this to the disciples, and this is probably the hardest thing to get our heads around right now. Verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Wow, really? Really, Jesus, you were glad that we weren't there? You were glad that this all is washing out the way it is? Glad about that? You got to hear what Jesus is saying here. I'm glad he died because I'm going to do something that's going to cause your faith to spring up. I'm going to cause you to believe. Every bit of hurt and pain that you will endure And this life as a follower of Jesus is not wasted. It's not. I just want to reinforce that and remind you about that. God's always, always up to something bigger. So wherever you're at, whatever's pressuring you right now, whatever's got you in a a place right now of darkness and hurt and pain, God is always up to something bigger. And there's a real temptation to get frustrated and to lose hope. And to just give up, right? That's what Thomas did. Like you read the verse, the, the, the next verse, 16. It says, so Thomas called the twin. That's, it, that's, it, that's what his name meant. Said to his dis- fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now this on the surface might sound like it's super profound or like he's being overly faithful, but it is dripping with sarcasm. Oh, Jesus is walking to his death. Well, he wants us to go, guys. Let's get up. Let's all go die with him. That's Thomas. 
So we can respond that way, like, okay, God, you're in control, and this is where you're sending us, this is where we're walking. Or you can respond, we're going to go to, I want to chase a rabbit for a minute and, and look at another story because here's another response that we have. And many of you heard this story just a week ago, and we're going to revisit it in Luke chapter 8, verse 41. If you're there, you can flip there. The, the verses will be on the screen. But it's a story of a man named Jairus. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. So he's a, he's a powerful person. He's not just a nobody. And falling at Jesus' feet, right? There's the posture we're looking for. He implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. She was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood was ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well go in peace. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful story that this woman, through her faith, through her faith was healed by simply touching the fringes of Jesus' clothes. But let's not forget about Jairus. Got a 12-year-old daughter who's on the verge of death right now. There's massive crowds mounting everywhere, and this woman has been dealing with this chronic issue for 12 years. She's been going through this for 12 years. It's not an emergency. Jairus has an emergency. If you're a doctor in an emergency room, you deal with the little girl first. You don't deal with Jairus, or you, you deal with uh, Jairus' daughter first and not the woman. Right? That's just how it goes. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. He doesn't respond the way we think he should respond. He stops to engage this woman, and he does so because he cares about her soul. He cares about her soul. Imagine the frustration and the confusion that Jairus is going through right here. Like, hey, man, can you wrap this thing up? Like, can we get moving down the street? I've got a 12-year-old daughter, my only child, who's, who's dying right now. Can, can we, you know, give her healing? Let's get out of here. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, and your daughter, she's dead. Like, she's dead. So don't trouble this guy anymore. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. It's like, What? What just happened? What just happened? Like, imagine all of this that he's going through. In verse 50, Jesus hears this, and he says, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Trust me in the waiting. Trust me in the waiting. Trust me in the midst of loss. Trust me in the midst of, of fear. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter it with him except Peter and John and James. And the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. For she is not dead but sleeping. Here we go again. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Jesus loved the woman who was sick for a long time. He loved Jairus, and he loved the little girl, and he was doing something in all of their lives. 
He was doing something in every one of them, and he does it on his time, not on their time. He does it in his timeline. Jesus knows the pain of unanswered prayer. Now, I want to I come around that. I want, you, I want you to remember Gethsemane, right? Remember, and Jesus and all of his humanity, all of it was laid bare at Gethsemane. And he's asking, hey, God, if there is any way to demonstrate your mercy without violating your holiness, right? If there's any way for you to justify sinners without being unjust, if there is such thing as a plan B, God's answer was always, no, there's not. This is it. This is the plan, and you're headed to the cross. So I want to put a light on that because I want you to know that God will never ask you and me to do anything or to go anywhere where he hasn't gone himself. He's, never, he's not going to do that. He has gone throughout creation, throughout humanity, as 100% fully human and 100% fully God, experiencing all of the, the heartache and the hurt and the pain and the disappointment as a human, even unanswered prayers. All the while, Jesus knows the right answer, right? Because he and the Father are one. He knows the right answer. So we got to be able to see the goodness of God even when he doesn't respond the way we want him to. We have to see the goodness of God. So before your world completely falls apart, before it comes all unraveled, you have to know who it is that you trust. You have to know who it is that you trust. You have to trust God's sovereignty. You have to trust that he is never, ever late. God is always, always, always on time. It's just not on your time. He's never late. And so we're going to go one more place, and, and I'll try to wrap this up here pretty quick, but Romans chapter 8, if you want to flip there, and we'll try to spend the rest of our time there. In verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not everybody. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So in God's economy, in his kingdom, even our tears and even our loss have meaning. And we can be sure in God's kingdom that our suffering in this world is not wasted. It's not a waste. And the, assur the assurance for that is in the following two verses. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Promise after promise after promise after promise from a God who knows not how to break a promise. The God, this, this God is in the midst of my pain and suffering. He's in the midst of your pain and suffering. And he had a love for you before you were ever even born. 
He had a plan for you that would, that would result in you being conformed into the image of his son. And I just want to talk about being conformed. Uh, that's being pressed in. That's being refined. That's being pushed from the outside in. That's what being conformed means. And so he had a plan for that as well. You are externally being shaped and refined. In his great love for you, he has called you to step right into his will. Here's the will for your life. And I'm calling you to step in it, walk in it, step in it and and walk in it. And he'll put you on the right side of his judgment, right? That's what it says. Those whom he called, he also justified. He made right, right? He said, Jesus is right. He's he's the righteous one. He's the one who's perfect. And, And he's going to the cross and I'm giving all of that righteousness to you. And that's a promise that God's made for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the promise he's made for us. And we'll get a little bit more into this next week, but I just want to give you a glimpse of today. I told David that I'd be stepping all up in his verses this week for just a minute. But verse 25, Jesus makes the last of the seven I am statements. That's where we'll be next week. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Right? Now we're back to last week. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for those who put their faith in Jesus, those who believe in him, that he is their resurrection and he is their life, and that no one can snatch them from his hands, that he gives them life and they will never die, you will never die in Christ? Our hope is not found in comfort and health and riches. Let me say that again. Our comfort is not found in our health, in our riches, in our pain-free life. Our hope is not that Jesus would be our bellhop who just jumps every time we snap. Right, Jesus, I need you to be here, and I need you to respond this way. It's not where our hope is found. God forbid we ever communicate that from this place. That if you just put your faith in Jesus, he's going to give you what you want and things are just going to work out for you. I hope that we're showing you exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully, even when it hurts and even when it's, you're confused about it. And our good works and our, the good stuff that we do doesn't get Jesus to adjust to our timeline, right? That's what Mary and Martha needed for him to do. Like, we, we love you. We adore you. We worship you. We're close friends. You love us. So you need to do this in a timely manner. Our hope is certainly not that God helps those who help themselves. That's trash. That's anti-gospel. God helps those who are helpless through the gospel. So our hope is this. Through, Through God's grace and mercy... And through his grace and mercy alone, we get Jesus. And when we get Jesus, we have everything we need. We have everything you need in Jesus. Because what this means is that you have life that never ends. And this is our everything. In the midst of pain and suffering and hurt and confusion and loss, we have Jesus. And that's what we need. That's what we need in that moment. I don't need somebody giving me some good practical ideas. 
I don't need someone trying to have a counseling conversation with me unless it involves the gospel because that's what I need in those moments is Jesus. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for reminding us today of your goodness, your graciousness, your mercy, your forgiveness, and that you can heal and that you do heal. Thank you for reminding us that healing and resurrection aren't the end of the story, but they're just a means to the end of the story that you would be made much of through your good works and through your good word. And Father, thank you so much that I'm not so far away from this, this word that today's text won't affect me as well. I thank you for working in my heart personally, and I pray, Father, that this word, as it has gone out, has worked in the hearts of those of us who are possibly going through a painful situation, a situation that hurts, that has us confused, or a situation that we think we've got control of that only brings about anxiety and worry and fear. Thank you for making a promise to us from, from the beginning of time that you loved us before we were born, that you've called us to step into a purpose that you have designed for us before we were born. So through your great love and your great mercy and your great grace, we might walk in them with new hearts given to us by Jesus and the work and the sacrifice and the death and the resurrection has been given to us in him. God, would we be would we be more captivated by you now than we were when we showed up here today? That would see and through the gospel, seeing through this good news of Jesus that there's a destination that he's headed to. And the destination is a place of hurt and confusion and pain. But it's for your glory and it's for our good. And so we embrace that idea today, knowing that Christ has done what it takes for us to be made right with you. Christ has given us everything we need to walk through a pain, a painful life or a painful situation. A situation where there's loss and hurt and confusion. We have Christ. And so I pray for the one today who would who would say they don't follow Jesus, that they haven't put their faith in Jesus. I would pray, Father, that you would crack their cold heart open and give them life.
Show them the beauty of Jesus. So that they could walk in the purpose that you've designed for them in their life. I pray that they would see the beauty and majesty of Jesus alone. God, would you put a burning desire in my heart and our hearts for that? And cause us to walk in the purpose that you've designed us for, the purpose that you've built for us. Thank you for reminding us that there's no amount of good work, there's no amount of adoration that could manipulate you, that could cause you to do something that's outside of your will. But your will is always perfect and good. So God, would you conform our lives and transform our hearts to believe this and to walk in it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.